Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety, and of course, doctors' well-being. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is especially important for healthcare professionals during COVID-19 and beyond. Today we're going to be talking about burnout and how technology might play a role in improving conditions for NHS staff. We're going to be joined by the founder of something called Patchwork Health, uh, which is a small startup that BMJ has invested in as a company to support their work. So Abby, what are your thoughts about burnout and its current prevalence within the NHS? Well, I think it's probably pretty high. I know that we had a report from MPs highlighting the issue. And today I'm looking at another report from the BMA, looking specifically at doctors and the very high levels of people who are facing moral distress and moral injury as a result of their work in the NHS. So I think it's, I think it's unfortunately extremely prevalent at the moment. Absolutely. And I think as we've reflected lots of times in the podcast, you know, we've had all the pressures and stresses of COVID-19 and the pandemic, but that's come on top of this deep underlying pre-existing problem within the healthcare workforce, you know, not just among doctors, but health and social care staff across the board, um, where they're experiencing really high levels of, of, as you said, moral distress, exhaustion, um, problems with their well-being and, and burnout. And I think we're really concerned about what the lasting impact of, of COVID-19 might be and, and what we can do to sort of mitigate mitigate the risks. Well, we are really happy to have on the podcast today someone who has thought about this a lot. Anas, please could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you very much, Kat. Um, thank you much, Abby. Please uh, be here today. So um, I am a doctor by training, any doctor, um, trained here at Imperial College in London, in the UK. Um, and I'm also the uh, CEO and co-founder of Patrick Health, um, a digital staffing and workforce management solution. Now, Anas, I think you have in the past experienced burnout. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. I would say probably during my foundation years, but certainly towards the end of my foundation, my two foundation years, as much as I loved the teams I worked with and enjoyed um, the clinical work itself, I've started experiencing symptoms of burnout. And I think it came down to the fact that um, my identity as an individual was stripped down to the hours of work I was doing. Burnout comes in very different forms, but the form I experienced is that disillusionment that came from just becoming a number in a system rather than my own um, unique approach to my career. A system that really was very hard to work from within whilst maintaining um, my full identity in in everything else I'm doing. Um, and since then, I've, I've become a father and I've just realized how that even became more complex. The minute I wanted to become more of a hands-on father was probably more available for his daughter. So I think it, I've experienced it from the point, from, a, from, from the rigidity and inflexibility that came with substantive work, especially as a trainee, but I think for everyone, as well as um, 
the the um, the unintentional dehumanization that comes from becoming just a, a number in the conveyor belt of medicine. Um, I think that's where I really decided to take a bit of a step back from full-time work. I did an innovation fellowship at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital that allowed me to mix between, which created the balance between my clinical work, which was an A&E, as well as innovation work. And actually through that program, that fellowship program at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, where I started um, building the product that we ended up then um, spinning off into a startup. And, um, and yeah, the rest is history since then. Thank you, Anna. It's made me think a lot about my own kind of journey through and out of medicine and clinical practice. And um, I think it's my my reflection is that it's particularly tough, I think, for, for trainees, um, because often you have these very long training programmes at a time when contemporaries who've done other subjects uh, and other careers may have a lot more autonomy and flexibility. Um, and trainees really, really do get pushed around from pillar to post. Um, you know, geographical location, organisation, um, particular jobs within their training programme that, that may not suit their preferences personally or professionally. Um, and, and I think perhaps in some some more control and flexibility than they used to have 20 years ago when I was doing it. Gosh, I'm so extremely old. Um, <laughs> but but certainly, I think much less much less autonomy and flexibility than than is probably necessary for their for their well-being um and no that's a huge challenge for health education england but you're very right because certainly it's still less flexible compared to the other industries that are competing for the same talents that the nhs is is trying to recruit um and these are not just medical industries there are industries that find the skill sets or the uh, problem solving skills of healthcare professionals quite meaningful in their own industries um, but also provides all these perks and flexibility that is 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 what many um, many clinicians are seeking. So I think for the NHS to remain that employer of choice for the amazing talent that is graduating from university or immigrating to the UK, it's it's about really ensuring that 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 well-being and um, and and support uh, both for physical and mental health for clinicians is front and center. Um, and I think what's really tricky about burnout is it's very subtle and it takes a long time before it builds up to that threshold where an individual would say enough is enough. Um, and actually often most of my colleagues who later on identify burnout in their in their careers, it often is done in retrospective. They look back at it and they were like, actually that that sounds like I I was going through a burnout, not knowing that I was burning out. Um, and, and I think I, I, I compared a lot to quite a lot of um, um, often symptoms of, 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 of other uh, mental health uh, issues uh, where people finding well, similar to Annie Dell, you know, the lack of uh, lo- when you lose, lose interest in, in, in things that you used to enjoy. Well, if you start losing interest in the scientific endeavor of medicine or the clinical interaction with patients and when that one more consultation squeezes at the end of the day becomes to feel more of a burden than something you really excited to do uh, as part of your calling. I think that's that's when it becomes quite evident that you were burnt out. Um, so I think it starts really by really identifying it. I think it's really hard to identify it in the early days. And Anas, that's something I wanted to come back to you on because you talked about your own experiences and you said 
you know, that you felt very disillusioned by the work and that there was this sense of loss of identity. And I wonder whether, how, when you knew, because those things I imagine could exist without that being burnout, you know, you could be disillusioned with your job and not be burnt out, or you could feel like you'd lost your identity in a role and not be burnt out. I wonder when you knew the tipping point had come, that those things were part of a bigger issue and that issue was burnout. Um. I think it's when my I started noticing some significant changes in my um, the outward aspect of my personality. So I'm a very extroverted guy. Um, if anyone who's ever worked with me would know, um, and I've started to become a lot more introverted. And um, I started to withdraw from my social life because I just wanted some quiet time on my own. Um, I started withdrawing from the activities I used to do in my free time. Because you do have free time. You do have time off when you're not working. But that time off, because of the hours when you're working, and because that time off not necessarily something you have flexibility over, is just not ends up being the time off that you'd like to use to um, to do the things you would have done. So I think it's it's there's obviously disillusionment from the job itself, but I think when it became, it started impacting my... Um, mood and impacting my, um, my, my personality traits of being more outgoing and more extroverted. And when my loved ones start noting that I am no longer as engaged in the activities or the social and engagements I used to attend, um, I started picking up that that's probably going to start having some really long-term effect on my happiness and my, and my mental well-being. And, and I have to say, I think it's a very personal experience. I think the people experience probably very differently. So the way I describe my, my experience of burnout, it's probably very different from others. I luckily haven't had sleep disturbances. Some of my colleagues had. Um, I luckily haven't had the financial problems that come sometimes with burnout or, 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 or money problems that come with, you know, uh, uh, spending habits that change. Um, different people experience. I haven't had the relationship breakdowns, unfortunately, that I've seen some other, other, um, other colleagues. And I think, it's, it's, it's one of the, the most dangerous signs of burnout is when your threshold for empathy goes down. Um, and therefore you're unable to empathize with your patients and you're unable to empathize with your loved, down, loved ones. And that's when relationships break down. And that's when you become an unsafe doctor as well. So I think, um, luckily I was, I didn't experience it that way, but I, I know, I know of colleagues who have. Thanks, Anas. We'll talk about that more in a bit, but here's a message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our wellbeing program is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. Thank you for sharing your experiences of burnout 
Uh, and I know they can be deeply personal and, and we appreciate you taking the time and having that openness to share them because as you said I think that's really really powerful and it has a positive thing that's come out of COVID and not just an openness about burnout but a recognition that it's a pressing problem for our workforce and for the safety of our, our systems and our patients. How did going through that experience change your career path would you say? So the first step, um, if we go back to that job I had at Chelsea, the first step was really, initially, I decided to become a flexible worker myself. And so I wanted to find ways to work flexibly in the NHS. Um, my feeling that was going to be a temporary position, as many doctors, many junior doctors, take a gap year or two, sometimes it becomes four or five, um, jokingly. Um, we refer to ourselves as F3+, sometimes F4, F5, F6. Basically, anything after foundation year two becomes an infinite foundation year. Um, and I thought that's, that's going to be it. And I then realized quite quickly, and together with my co-founder, who's also going through a similar period of transition, um, that working flexibly um, outside of a permanent job, substantive job, is very difficult. And the easiest way to do it is do it through the agency system, which is the agency locum system, um, which is still not the most user-friendly way to do it for the clinician, but it's just the path of least resistance. Uh, but it's definitely the um, very problematic from the employer's point of view, especially if it becomes a dependency on agency workers rather than the ad hoc need for agency workers. So um, it was very cost-ineffective and, and questionable quality at times. And I think... I, I, I've seen it from the employer side, uh, from the NHS organization side in my role at Chelsea, where part of my innovation role was to look at solving that problem from a um, medical leadership and a HR leadership point of view. And so there was a kind of a, 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 a project internally to see how we can improve the recruitment and retention of flexible workers on the bank to reduce reliance on the agencies. And just to become an overly better employer of flexible workers for doctors. So I guess, Anas, the million dollar question and kind of partly why we wanted to speak to you today is how can all that technology that you've developed help us improve working conditions for NHS staff and kind of aim to maybe even help reduce burnout among staff? So um, that's a good question. I think it's, it's in many ways, it's a journey um, that we're on with probably many steps along the way. Um, but the, the core areas of focus right now for us is how we introduce clinicians' preferences and whether it's personal or professional preferences into algorithmic cross-shrink. Because at the moment, most algorithmic cross-shrink focuses on just spreading your supply to meet your demand, as it should to a certain extent. But we want to expand the idea of looking at um, rostering, whether it's algorithmic or even manual rostering, to include clinician profile preferences. And, and those are both personal and professional preferences. So whether it is a trainee who wants to be paired up with a consultant because that's where they're doing most of their knee surgeries with, or whether it is a, um, a GP registrar who wants to avoid 
Friday afternoon clinics because they're a single dad and that's when they have their sons um, visiting them or whether it is a, um, a researcher who wants to make sure Mondays and Tuesdays are never where possible, never rostered on Mondays or Tuesdays because that's where their lab time at the university is. And I think being able to capture that kind of set of preferences and take that into account as the roster is being designed is, is one big area we're focusing on. Whilst we know, and our clinicians that we work with know, that you're not going to get 100% of your preferences, but the fact that we're optimizing for your preferences and your needs, the same way we're optimizing for patient care and for safe staffing, is alone a huge step in the right direction. It, it emphasizes to the clinician that your views matter, your needs matter, and that this scheduling system is taking into account every way it can. The other area we're focusing a lot on is really rethinking um, rostering away from a single organizational problem to a system-wide problem. Because now one of the biggest challenges for trainees is they're rostered in isolation every four to six months. Here's a story. I, I think that's worthwhile mentioning. So um, when I was uh, doing my F2 year, I had one of my colleagues who was trying, who planned her wedding six to 12 months ago. And then when she received her, I think it was an acute medicine or any rota, I can't remember which one, but one of those rotas you received last minute with quite a lot of on-call shifts that are almost impossible to take time off for. But she's already planned her wedding. She already had um, all the invites out, the venue lined up. Um, and she frantically emailed every single doctor she can email, hoping that someone could swap. And like enough, I just was able to offer her that cover. Um, that otherwise would have just meant that she would have had to have a very awkward conversation with the hospital or change her plans. And I quickly realized that she was not the one She's, she's not a rarity. Quite a lot of people's weddings, whether you are a guest or sometimes even your own, um, had to, had to be disrupted by very rigid rostering and scheduling goals. And it's, it's about how can we take rostering to become multi-organizational? Because the clinician doesn't necessarily know that entity A is separate legal, that entity B, all they care about are rostered in entity A and they're moving to be to work to entity B, can I get my rosters connected? And can entity A make sure that I don't end up on a night shift before I move to entity B where I start on a day shift right away? It's just these kind of pain points that often we find as small and simple as they sound, what cause nightmares for clinicians and entire stressful situation where it just compounds on top of the clinical demands of the job. Um, I was going to add, Anas, you really made me think of... Um... This Christmas just gone, we had an article in the BMJ about how to um, swap your Christmas shift with another member of staff. And, you know, really, we ought not to have to give that kind of advice because it shouldn't be down to staff themselves to sort out their Christmas shift or have that awkward conversation with someone who they think might not celebrate Christmas and therefore might be willing to take their shift. Um, And it's all these kind of workarounds, as you say, with your colleague with her wedding having to ask you, the people have had to develop, which really should be sorted out at a systemic level and not by individuals. Yeah, because weddings are planned last minute. Therefore, there should have been plenty of heads up uh, in the system if weddings are planned at least a year, if not more. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, and I think it's, it's the biggest, um, one of the things that we've noticed as well is when there is, 
when there's a repeat um, repetitive insults to a clinician, that's when people get really resentful of the system. So, for example, it's one thing to work on Christmas. It's something else for you to rotate to junior doctor for 12 years and happen to have almost every Christmas, you happen to be the guy or gal who selected to work for that Christmas. Um, with no knowledge, and both imagine are doing it intentionally, they just don't know that you worked Christmas last Christmas, and the one before, and the one before. So it ends up becoming literally the luck of a draw, are you working this Christmas or not? And if you're that unlucky, then you're that unlucky to work every Christmas. And um, one of the things we, one of our um, product and engineering people in our company was just thinking about introducing the concept of a Hertz score. And the Hertz score is kind of a way to register how many times the system has hurt you. Um, by not matching your preferences and therefore prioritizing you with your preferences in the next cycle of fostering. And we're trying to think of ways to introduce that, especially when you become multi-organizational, where you're carrying some of your hurt score from previous employers. Um, it's a tricky thing to get right, and we're still trying trying to figure it out. But what we're trying to capture is that 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 repeat insult that happens to a single doctor who just happened to be unlucky. Um, and again, plenty of examples of people who have repeatedly worked Christmases or Eids or Hanukkahs or any other religious holiday and always struggled to find a way to just make it part of BAU to just make sure that you distribute Christmases evenly and Eids evenly to the people who want to take those days off. Thanks, Enos. We'll be back in a moment after this. As a doctor always on the go, you need quick access to accurate evidence-based clinical recommendations you can trust. UpToDate is a continuously updated clinical decision support resource that helps you find answers to your medical questions. Benefit from access to more than 12,000 clinical topics across more than 25 specialities, with more than 9,500 graded expert recommendations at your fingertips. Join the growing network of over 2 million medical professionals worldwide who rely on UpToDate. Visit go.uptodate.com slash wellbeing. That's go.uptodate.com slash wellbeing and use promo code wellbeing to save 25 US dollars on your annual or longer subscription. I think I think the other sort of observation I have is that also then it starts to become about you and your personality, doesn't it? And it starts to become that if you are somebody who is a people pleaser or who is not willing to seek confrontation you know you you don't push back you don't say hang on I've worked the last two Christmases and then you can get into gender issues or equity issues you know depending on people who have more or less power in the system you know we've talked in the previous podcast about racism in medicine you know if you're already feeling like you're being judged for your whatever it is from the color of your skin to your religion you know is it how easy is it for you to say hang on a minute this is unfair Uh, I want my treatment to be changed um so there's all of those complex issues as well I think also there can be an assumption sometimes among managers I mean I think you spoke about managers and clinicians wanting the same thing and I think we forget that too often that everyone actually has the same aim you know to have safe staffing that that incorporates people's preferences as much as possible but I think sometimes there's a perception that people won't want certain shifts and I was just remembering that when I was a trainee I carried on doing um bank shifts at the sexual assault centre throughout my training um as a sexual offences examiner you know which were all night shifts, all out of hours, all kind of 12 hour on calls, um, often with work the next day, because it was 
it worked for me because I knew I had to commit three shifts a month and I just chose the ones that I wanted, negotiated if I had to with a small group of colleagues who were all very accommodating. Normally there was no negotiation to be done. Um, and it was fulfilling work despite the antisocial shifts and it was made easy. So I think it's just interesting for me that reflected what made me want to do that rather than, um, you know, go on bank for the local A&E, which would have been or, or, for example, the local GP out of hours service, which was a horrific experience doing shifts there. I think you bring up a very, very interesting point, which is really the fact that, um, you know, the, the diversity of preferences are diverse as the people behind it. So I remember working, uh, when I was working in E at Chelsea Westminster Hospital, there was this one nurse that I happened to always um, get work with her at night shifts. Almost like if I happen to do a night shift, you're always there. So I asked her once, are you always a night shift? And she said, absolutely. I am. I only do night shifts. I don't do day shifts at all. I don't do long days. I was like, you do that out of choice. And she said, well, yes, because that's what works between me and my partner and our kids. He goes during the day. I'm at home during the day. He's at home at night. I'm at work at night. And that works for me. And that's what I want. That's my choice. So you very much say it's unsocial hours. Most people will try to swap away from nights, but she was seeking the night shifts. And similarly, I remember there was a colleague of mine who only wanted to work weekends because, or mostly weekends, because she was looking after her demented um, dad who had dementia and Alzheimer's. And during the week, her sibling would look after, sorry, on the weekends, her sibling would look after her dad um, because people are off on the weekends, people who don't work in healthcare. Um, but and then she can look after him during the weekdays. So again, weekends most people want to have him off, but she wanted to work weekends because that that's what worked for her and her life, and her personal life and her family life. So I think it's really appreciating that um, that 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 people have very different reasons for choosing to work when and where. And also, I really want to emphasize the point that people looking for less than full time work or shifts that suit their family life are not just moms. Dads are also looking for that. I think that stereotype of most flexible working, most bank working, it tends to be a mom. Um, it could be any parent, really. Um, and we're seeing a lot more dads wanting to be more um, at home with kids when they want to. So I think just taking that stereotype away, as you said, often um, some managers will still be seeking old, old traditional personas. Uh, the parent who wants time off is a mom. And uh, the people who hate shit, uh, who shifts are not are disliked are not shifts or weekend shifts, and that's and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, and, and absolutely, I think also it used to be that if you wanted a less than full time training post, you have to had had to have a very specific caring responsibility, such as a child or a, a parent. It couldn't be just as you said that you wanted to have a diverse experience throughout your training and and spend your time doing something else, like for example, some of our um our editorial registrars who've wanted to carry on working with us at the BMJ throughout their training and they've had various success in in making that happen. I would just say luckily on that I know that was piloted by Health Education England in some specialties it's now been rolled up across the board for all specialties that you don't have to have a, a reason to request. I mean it's madness that you did have to before um, but at least now hopefully you don't have to. So you talked about the fact that lots of clinicians might take time off, say after COVID, whenever after COVID might be. And we already know that, that rotoring is an issue. We know there are lots of rotor gaps already on wards. I mean, are you worried about the potential impact that 
this post-COVID potential breaks that lots of people will have are going to have on on the ability for hospitals even to kind of have enough staff? Oh, 100%. Um, it, it is definitely going to have a big impact in our ability to deliver safe care. Um, and and many reasons for me, the reason many clinicians are stepping back, some just want a break from the 18 months frontline work of COVID. Others, and that's quite a, a significant number from certain surveys that came out of YouGov that highlighted that quite a few of them want to dial down their hours. So they just want to work less intensely, but often face the only option to step away is to completely leave full-time work and maybe come back on the bank or agency as a, as a temp worker, um, rather than remain a substantively employed or rostered worker, but on less hours. So, of course, the first concern would be if you step down to part-time work, therefore I will lose your full-time capacity to deliver the care. But having you part-time is better than not having you at all on my rota. And the hard reality is our clinicians are burnt out and therefore it's very important that they do take some break because you know, a big part of burnout is not able to take any time off. Um, many clinicians and NHS managers haven't taken any of their usual annual leave in the past 12 months. So I think the idea that, yes, the system will take that shock. Unfortunately, I think an honest conversation needs to be had um, with everyone involved, all the stakeholders, including our patient bodies, that some delays will continue to be in, in our elective care. Um, as much as we can play catch up, there will be an element of delay because there's an element of burnout that needs to be addressed and therefore clinicians need to take time off. Unfortunately, that's compounded by the fact that uh, what we used to be able to get from overseas clinicians coming into the UK as um, as qualified, skilled um, immigrants, whether doctors or nurses, that has been impacted by COVID because of travel. During COVID is impacted, and obviously by Brexit. So, I think this is obviously a much more complex problem than software can solve. Software is just is looking at how can you best match supply to demand in a very clever way that also maintains preferences of clinicians. We can try and solve that problem, but um, the root cause of a low uh, or, 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 or an increased demand in our clinical services without an, uh, an equivalent increase in our clinical capacity through our clinicians is a much more system-wide problem. So, Anas, I think as Kat said, I mean, I think a lot of what you've described would really be music to a lot of doctors' ears, you know, if you've been able to get your wedding off guaranteed and not having to have that awful negotiation with someone to cover your holiday. So if I'm a if I'm a rotor manager or a doctor and I think, oh my God, this sounds excellent. I want this rostering system in my trust. Is there anything I could do to encourage my management to get on board? Well, first of all, reach out to us. Uh, we can have a conversation directly, um, hopefully. Um, and... And, and also, um, yeah, I think encourage, encourage your, um, trust leaders, whether it's medical directors or HR directors to just look wider through the market and at some of the exciting innovations coming in. Um, and, um, to question how things have been done in the past and not take them for granted and, 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 and see what else is out there that might offer something a bit different. Um, but of course, please do reach out directly to us and we'll see how we can help. 
Well, that was so interesting. Unfortunately, though, due to a scheduling issue, we don't have Kat with us to discuss the podcast further. So I'll just say thanks ever so much to our guest, Anna Snader, for coming on the podcast. You can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. We'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.